from the Restoration Archives. This is Light and Truth. These remarks by Denver about the Christmas story were originally recorded in Lehigh, Utah on September 20th, 2020, in front of a live audience. Well, as I understand it, there are some people who are joining us from a distance, and I wanted to start in on time to be courteous for them. Um, this is about the Christmas story, but we're going we're gonna to back into the Christmas story. When Joseph Smith was in the Liberty Jail, um, given the frantic pace of everything that had gone on in his life, up until the time of his arrest and incarceration, Liberty Jail really constituted the first time that Joseph Smith had an extended opportunity to think. He would lose that opportunity as soon as he got out of Liberty Jail. And by the time you get to Nauvoo and the things that occur there, he becomes the the postmaster, because they were afraid that the prior postmaster was stealing money that was being sent in through the postal service that was intended to help fund the temple and it was being misappropriated. He was the mayor because the mayor of Nauvoo had proven himself to be a liar and an adulterer and ultimately got excommunicated. He was the major general of the Nauvoo Legion because the predecessor had been caught in the compromising position and he had to go. And if you read the the journals and diaries of what Joseph was going on, that's just a short list. He was also trying to manage the affairs of the church, oversee the people that should not have required being overseen in handling financial affairs. Uh, He was corresponding. He was sensitive to the issues that created political conflict when the Mormons tipped the vote in a state because of their sizable population. And one way to neutralize that animosity was to run for the presidency. And so if the Mormon vote got canceled out because they were voting for Joseph Smith as president, that would leave the other parties to decide the popular vote and no one could be offended by how the Mormons voted. He was managing a mess and it took all his time and more. But in Liberty Jail, he had a brief opportunity between the mess that had happened in Kirtland that resulted in people conspiring to kill him who were members of the church. They wanted him dead because of the failure of the bank. He he was chased out of Kirtland and he left in the middle of the night to um, to try and uh, get out of there with him himself still alive. 
Uh, he was followed for about 200 miles by people that were trying to kill him. When he arrived out in Missouri, there was a mess underway there. Ultimately, um, they wound up with um, the siege at Far West and the surrender of Joseph Smith into custody. And then there was this respite for nearly six months in which Joseph Smith was confined to prison. Now, on occasion, he was brought out and paraded around and shown off as the prisoner and ridiculed and laughed at. But for the most part, he had peace and quiet. What's interesting about how he used that time is that at the end of the incarceration, without knowing when he would be released, he wrote a letter. It's a single letter, but it came out in two installments. So it constitutes two sections of the teachings and commandments. In the LDS um, Doctrine and Covenants, it comprises Doctrine and Covenants sections 121, 122, and 123. But those are just excerpts from the letter, and they're not even um, continuous excerpts. They, they are excerpts that grab and mix together and miss the discussion that ties together what, what went on. In the Teachings and Commandments, the entire letter in its two installments is reproduced. And this is some of what was on Joseph Smith's mind when he finally had the opportunity for reflection and thought. A fanciful and flowery and heated imagination be aware of, because the things of God are of deep import, and time and experience and careful and ponderous and solemn thought can only find them out. Your mind, O man, if you will lead a soul into salvation, must stretch as high as the utmost heavens and search into and contemplate the lowest considerations of the darkest abyss and expand upon the broad considerations of eternal expanse. You must commune with God. How much more dignified and noble are the thoughts of God than the vain imagination of the human heart? None but fools will trifle with the souls of men. How vain and trifling have been our spirits, our conferences, our councils, our meetings, our private as well as public conversations, too low, too mean, too vulgar, too condescending for the dignified characters of the called and chosen of God, according to the purposes of his will from before the foundation of the world. This is what Joseph contemplated in the quiet opportunity of confinement in prison. We've wasted too much time because our minds have been too frantic 
to consider carefully and solemnly and deeply the things that really matter. And if that was a problem during the confinement in 1838 and 39 in Missouri, think of what the problem is with minds today with the internet, with social media, with handheld opportunities to text and communicate beginning at 10 years old. How badly have we damaged our ability to engage in time, experience, careful, ponderous, solemn thought that is required in order to understand the things of God. What a wreck has been made of your own minds as you've been exposed to this current environment. Joseph is talking in a rural, agrarian, quiet society where you couldn't even hear a train in the distance. Shortly after I was baptized, a friend of mine, uh, Steve Claproth, came to Mountain Home, Idaho, where I happened to be at my parents' house. And he and I were out in the backyard late at night. And he commented, it's so quiet here. The only sound you could hear were the crickets that were nearby and a train miles away on a railroad track giving out its hum and its churn as it moved across in the distance. Today, today people spend money to get white noise to to allow them to flee from the racket, from the cacophony inside of which we live. So one of the challenges that I face in coming here is what can be done in these circumstances to get us to focus carefully and solemnly for just a moment on things that that really matter. When... When Christ came to visit with the Nephites, after he had done the the sermon at Bountiful, which is a mirror of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and after he had um, spent the day with them, he makes this observation to them. I perceive that ye are weak 
that you cannot understand all my words, which I'm commanded of the Father to speak unto you at this time. Therefore, go ye into your homes and ponder upon the things which I have said, and ask the Father in my name that ye may understand and prepare your minds for the morrow. And I come unto you again. He would come unto them again, and the next day he would pick up and he would teach them further. Same people, same audience, same Lord minister, but their minds were unprepared to take in what it was he had been commanded to tell them. And so he had to take a hiatus, interrupt what he was going to do, and tell them, go and ponder what you've heard so far and come back tomorrow. Maybe we can get somewhere because careful and solemn and ponderous thought can only lead to the understanding that's required in order to focus the attention of the mind so that they can grasp what the Lord is trying to convey to them. My wife told me that she saw where chess champions in a chess match sitting down and studying a board and focused on the chessboard will burn 6,000 calories in the course of a game because of the mental exertion that's required to look at the board and to see when this piece is in this spot and all of the options that are available, how that interacts with the other pieces and the other squares and how they multiply until the study requires you to take a risk and guess what your opponent may do to try and force the advantage by the choice that you make. 6,000 calories. There are professional football players that don't burn that many calories in a football game. And they're out pushing and shoving and running and jumping and hitting and tackling. And all the chess player's doing is sitting at the table and focusing his mind. As the uh, prophet Joseph was called upon to uh, render a new translation of the Bible, um, in, um, in the course of looking at the Gospel of John, it became apparent that there had to be more than one condition in the afterlife And so they prayed to try and understand what the afterlife included. And um, it's Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, but it's in the Teachings and Commandments of section 69. Um, Something comes out by revelation to help explain some of what goes on in the afterlife. And as that vision is wrapping up, um, the... um, 
the conclusion of that has these words. But great and marvelous are the works of the Lord and the mysteries of his kingdom, which he showed unto us, which surpasseth all understanding in glory and in might and in dominion, which he commanded us that we should not write while we were yet in the spirit and are not lawful for men to utter. Neither is man capable to make them known. For they are only to be seen and understood by the power of the Holy Ghost, which God bestows on those who love him and purifieth themselves before him, to whom he grants this privilege of seeing and knowing for themselves that through the power and manifestation of the Spirit, while in the flesh, they may be able to bear his presence in the world of glory. Understood by the power of the Spirit, which surpasseth the ability of the tongue of man to communicate it, so that what you take in can be far greater than what the tongue of man is capable of conveying to you far greater than what you are able on your own to either articulate or to hand to another. But what you can do by your presence is to invite a shared experience through the Spirit to gain light and truth, which is why the same Lord, talking to the same audience that he would see the next day, tells them, I perceive that you're weak and you cannot understand the words I'm commanded to to tell you. So let me see if I can put out a picture that um, if you'll take it in and entertain the picture may help you grasp that there is something immensely bigger standing as a barrier between us and understanding that can be overcome, that that can be lifted, if you will. I'm not going to use um, a pillar of light because the pillar of light descending is something you've probably seen portrayed in first vision video stuff, and that'll wreck it for you, just like Peter Jackson's uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy wrecks the excitement of what you would get right now by reading Tolkien's book for the first time. It, it, it's now been packaged, and you can't see it without that interfering. So not a pillar of light. I want you to instead imagine a wall of light so bright that it hurts you 
to look at it. It's, it's like snow blindness. And the wall of light then moves and encompasses you and you are now inside it. There are times when the pupils of your eyes struggle to shut out the light and you get a sharp pain in your eye because you can't, you can't get that pupil narrow enough to exclude the light that is all around you. And you can see nothing. You can make nothing out except you're in the midst of this blinding, brilliant light. And, and, and it is incoherent. It's so bright that you're blind because all you see is the brightness of this light. And after a moment, you begin to make out vaguely a figure. And you realize that the light is emanating from this figure. As the presence of this figure becomes more stable before you, you begin to behold features. The hair of his head is as white as the snow. His eyes appear to be a flame of fire. His countenance is like lightning. And below his feet, a paved work of pure gold. And it is altogether beyond you. Frightening, intimidating. You want, like Isaiah, to confess, I'm unworthy. I'm, I'm a person of unclean lips. I dwell among people of unclean clean lips, and I'm not worthy to be here. But then the personage speaks and says, calling you by name, your sins are forgiven you. And your guilt is taken away. At which point, something more remarkable altogether happens. You begin to see this person has color in his eyes and color in his hair. And beneath his feet is no longer a flaming golden surface, but there's life beneath him as well. And now this glorious personage is something that you can at last take in because he's made himself known to you. Your guilt was removed because of a word from him. That God who you know cannot lie. The difference between coming into the blinding wall of light and now beholding that this person has a normal color of air, hair, a, a normal color of eyes, is the removal of your guilt by the words of this person. 
imagine as you're standing there before this personage that there are colors you've never seen. And if you got out your 96 crayon box and you searched through it to try and locate a color, there just isn't one. And so if you had to identify a color you've never seen before, you would use a word like joy or a word like love or a word like warmth, care, colors that animate you to the very core. So if you'll take that picture and ponder on it and then consider that the stories that we've got in our scriptures are not necessarily perfect, are not necessarily complete, are not necessarily even the best way to put something. But they have been approved by God because they are adequate for his purposes at this point to get what needs to be done accomplished. They are the best that anyone has, and they ought to be the anchor that we use in order to take our own minds and to ponder carefully, solemnly, and to try and reach through to see what it is behind these words that the Lord is trying to convey into our hearts, into our minds, into our understanding. Well, the account that we get by Paul, Luke wrote the story undoubtedly after having come into contact with Paul because it's clear from the um, the text of the book of Acts that Luke wrote it and that Luke would not um, encounter and join up with Paul until sometime years later in the events that took place. And so Paul had to report to Luke and then Luke had to write the account. And um, Paul on Mars Hill goes up to preach a sermon to try and get them to understand that there was a God who came and lived among them and uh, died and was resurrected. And uh, his point is uh, preaching Christ to the, to the people of Athens on Mars Hill. And this observation is what's made about those people on that hill after identifying um, that they were philosophers uh, Epicureans and Stoics uh, on the hill who debated endlessly. This is what is said about the Athenians. For all the Athenians and strangers who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. 
That's not how one gains access to the truth, to be continuously titillated with some new thing. Thinking and pondering carefully and solemnly does not involve the kind of um, robust voyeurism that oftentimes permeates our councils, our conferences, our conversations, our meetings. We're like these people, and that's too low, too mean, too vulgar, too condescending for the things of God. The things of God aren't titillating. We go about as if um, we've achieved some new and highly satisfactory result when we've had a good gospel conversation. When in fact, um, what we lack, what we lack is more of the heart and character than it is of hearing some new thing. Now, as it is written, the birth of Jesus Christ happened this way. This is Matthew, okay? Matthew's gonna tell you a story. But what's the story Matthew's going to tell? Now, as it is written, the birth of Jesus happened on this way. Where was it written, Matthew? Because I'm reading your account. And I don't have another account. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. So, who is this Mary character? What does it mean to be betrothed? Why was the betrothal to Joseph? Who was he? How do these people emerge into the story? There's a lot of evidence to suggest that Mary was someone that worked in the temple itself among the priestly class, that she was someone who wove the veil. I don't know if those stories are true or reliable, but think about the symbolism of what it would mean to have a young woman weaving a veil, engaged in the act of creation. You see, the veil in those days was made of four colors, and the four colors symbolized the four elements, looked over by the four great guardian angels of the four cardinal directions. And here is a young maiden who is managing 
the weaving of the veil, whether it be literally the case that she did or not, the symbolism of it all suggests something very profound about a very young lady. Well, we have, I mean, I don't know how to talk about these things in uh, a way that is delicate enough so as not to offend, but in the law of Moses, one of the reasons why a menstruating female was considered unclean was because in those days they did not have the same kinds of hygienic capacity that we have today. And so when Mary, working among the priests, had her first period, the priests would have known that. It, because of various issues, would not have been concealable, and she would not have been permitted into the ceremonially clean places, and she would have necessitated performance of sacrifices for ritual purity in order to return, in order to continue on in the service that she gave. And it also marked a moment at which um, she needed to be married. Tradition has it that it was the priests who arranged for accomplishing the marriage because she needed to be married. If she was now of age, then the circumstances required marriage. And there were apparently several people approached by the priests to marry her, and they uniformly declined. My suspicion is that there was a reason why... um, she was declined by those first approached. My suspicion is that even though she was a child, she was intimidating. She frightened these older men. And Joseph was someone, perhaps third, fourth, maybe fifth on the list, an older man who had already raised a family, who was asked widow Joseph to marry this young maid. Estimates of his age vary. Um, I've seen generally someone in their 70s being the guess for how old he would have been. We don't know. I mean, the sources... Certainly that's not the way that the the story is shown in in theater, in movies, and in storytelling. The fellowship ours was eight years old today, so. Yeah. 
So you've got, you've got a woman at the, at the very commencement of fertility and a man who has already raised a family, and you've got a relationship that is primarily motivated by religious concerns. And so the, the bargain is reached, the commitment is made, and now... Um, Mary is found with child. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away in private. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a vision, saying, Joseph, you son of David, Fear not to take unto yourself Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek version of the name Joshua in the anglicized version of the Hebrew name, which would have been Yeshua in the Hebrew tongue, and um, and the name itself would have had meaning. Now this took place that all things might be fulfilled, which were spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, awakening out of his vision, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took him his wife, and knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and they called his name Jesus. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is the child that is born, the Messiah of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard of the child, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them, saying, Where is the place that is written of the prophets in which Christ should be born? For he greatly feared, yet he believed not the prophets. Well, isn't that just typical? The scriptures scare the hell out of me, but I don't believe them. So, if there's going to be this Messiah, I really need to rid myself of him because the scriptures predicted he would come. And if he comes, then that means the scripture's been fulfilled. And if the scripture's been fulfilled, that means the prophets knew what they were talking about. And if the prophets knew what they were talking about, that means that God spoke to them. And if God spoke to them, that means God exists and he will judge things. 
and I just don't want to think about it, so how do I go about killing this Messiah? And they said unto him, It is written by the prophets that he should be born in Bethlehem of Judea. See, I went through that to show you how disbelief requires a great deal more mental energy than believing. It requires a phenomenal amount of effort to summon the faith to reject the prophets. It requires constant effort to defeat the evidences that God continuously puts before us. Hey, hold my calls. I'm doing something. For thus have they said, the word of the Lord came unto us, saying, And you, Bethlehem, which lays in the land of Judea, in you shall be born a prince who is not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of you shall come the Messiah, who shall save my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had called the wise men privately, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found the child, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they saw in the east went before them, and it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. When they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a vision, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt, and remain there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Then he arose and took the young child and the child's mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of by the, of the Lord, by the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly angry and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the region thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken of by Jeremiah the prophet, saying in Ramah, there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for the loss of her children and would not be comforted because they were not. See, um, there's more than one statement in Scripture about the coming of the Messiah into the world. One of the others that um, would have been expounded upon as... Um, Herod continued his insecurity over the potential loss of his kingdom at the birth of this Messiah would have undoubtedly continued to plague them and they would have continued to read from the scriptures the things that speak of this coming Messiah. Isaiah wrote, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them has the light shone. 
For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of government and peace there is no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. If you're Herod and you hear those words, what you realize is taken at face value. This child is about to displace you, take over that kingdom, And there will never come a generation after this in which a descendant of Herod's is going to be on the throne because this Messiah and those that come after him will have the government upon their shoulders. So, Christ is born in circumstances in which there is a local suzerain king subordinate to a Roman empire ruled over by a fellow who has the authority and the ability to send out soldiers and murder children. All of the children in Judea And yet, Christ is coming into the world to establish a government, the increase of which will never end, in the most improbable of moments, in the most improbable of circumstances, with the smallest of reasons to say that the wonderful counselor, the mighty prince, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the everlasting father, accomplished exactly what the scriptures say he was to accomplish. From Herod's vantage point, Christ was a mere inconvenience. The slaughter of the children was another day at the office. And when that miserable, syphilis-ridden monarch would die a few years later in his madness, because that's one of the things syphilis attacks, is the brain, He knew no one would mourn for his death. So he had representatives of all the chief families in the land brought when he was on his deathbed to a single place where he ordered all of them killed when he died so that there would be mourning throughout the land at the death of this great king. 
This is the guy that sent out to slaughter the child that Joseph being commanded in a vision, being awakened at night, took into Egypt in order to secure the Lord there. Well, there's another story. I did not read it. It's really the opening of the New Testament. That occurs in the holy place. The priest Zechariah goes in to offer a set prayer on behalf of Israel. He's not in there offering a prayer so that Elizabeth will conceive and bear a child. The set prayer that he would have recited included words asking that the light of God's countenance would return again to Israel. And so when the angel stepped out and the, and the, the description of how the angel emerges on the right side of the altar in the holy place is exactly the location that you would have to emerge if you were in the Holy of Holies and you moved through the veil to emerge into the holy place and speak. And so the angel Gabriel's presence conforms with the divinely established pattern for the temple layout and the temple choreography. And he announces to Zechariah that his prayer had been heard, was being answered, and that God would send a son to him, Zechariah, and that son would go before the face of the one who would return the light of God's countenance to Israel. He would prepare the way. This isn't Zechariah in the holy place trying to arrange family relations and secure a child. This is him in the priestly office asking that the nation that he represented receive a blessing to the nation from God, and it's not a personal prayer. It's an institutional prayer. It's, it's a prayer on behalf of the people. And the answer that he has given is on behalf of the people. And so Gabriel, who announces his name and that he stands in the presence of God, has come to say the light of God's countenance will return. And he's going to have a son, and that son is going to go before the presence of God to prepare the way before him. So... The story that we get in Josephus, who's considered reasonably reliable about these things, has at the time of the slaughter of the children in Judea, Herod's guards going to Zechariah and asking where his son was. Jesus' birth was obscure. The only people that learned about it 
which Luke records, are shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night, who have angelic ministers that tell them that the king has been born. And they go to find that out. John's birth was an extraordinary publicity stunt. Zechariah praying, as was his drawn by lots course to perform, comes out from his prayer and he can't speak. And the people perceive that he's seen an angel. This is in the temple. This is in Jerusalem. This is in the capital. Can you imagine the buzz? I mean, think about it. An angel appearing in the temple, and it was Zechariah. And now he's struck deaf and dumb, and he has, to, he has to write in order to tell them. And he goes his way. And then Elizabeth conceives. And then the son is born, and the son is brought to the temple, and he is presented for the sacrifice and the circumcision, and they're debating. None of his family has ever been named John. What is Elizabeth talking about? And they turn to Zechariah, and he writes, his name is John. Not given by Zechariah, not given by Elizabeth. Gabriel named him. And when he does that, his tongue is loosed. Well, he's spent nine months all quiet. Who knows what erupted on that day out of the mouth of Zechariah? The notoriety of this child would have been immense. William born to Diane and that funny-looking fellow with the big ears, Charles. Charles. Um, William didn't have as much notoriety as would have John at his birth. So if you're Herod and you want to make sure that you kill the right child, I mean, he kills every child two years old and younger. Based upon the account given in Scripture, the conception of John and the conception of Christ were six months apart. Christ would have been born at one season of the year. John would have been born exactly six months earlier in the opposite season of the year. John came into the world to close down a dispensation. Christ came into the world to open up a new dispensation. The birth of Christ would have, in all likelihood, have been in the spring. All of the debates that have been made about and all the reasons that have been given based upon the festivals, notwithstanding, Christ would have been born in the spring and John in the fall. John having been born first and would have been six months older 
than his cousin. So when the slaughter took place, what that would mean 12 years later at the Passover, when they would have come to be presented, is that the 12-year-old kids arriving would have been from Galatia and Athens and other communities, but locally hailing out of the immediate vicinity of Jerusalem, there would have been two. And they would have been cousins. It makes me wonder if the conversation that they interrupted and started asking questions of Christ didn't begin as a conversation among two cousins before the doctors of the law intervened and um, began to question the Christ themselves. It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is um, Octavius uh, of the recent killing of Mark Anthony and the suicide of Cleopatra after the conspiracy to kill uh, Julius Caesar and the... um, triumphant that resulted in the group turning on one another and Octavius winning in the subsequent fighting and upon ascending to being um, emperor, changed his name to Caesar Augustus. That's not a pompous name at all, is it? All his empire should be taxed. This same taxing was when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Cyrenius is the uh, Greek version of a Latin name. And it turns out we know a lot about that Latin fellow. He was actually raising the, um, the uh, chosen heir to Caesar Augustus as the mentor leader because he had been such a successful uh, leader in battle and administrator. Um, uh, Caesar Augustus opened up opportunities for common people to rise up in the ranks in a way that they never had before because he was trying to displace the Roman Senate. And in the process of displacing the Roman Senate, one of the beneficiaries of that was this Cyrenius, And he was so close with uh, Caesar that his uh, heir uh, was entrusted to him as mentor. They went off to battle, and uh, the heir got killed. He got wounded, and he died subsequently back in Syria. Um, But Augustus didn't hold that against Cyrenius. In fact, um, it it didn't trouble the relationship at all. He, He named a new a new heir, and that would be Tiberius, who would destroy the temple. 
And all went to be taxed, everyone in his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his betrothed wife, she being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was none to give room for them in the inns. And there were in the same country shepherds staying out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. But the angel said unto them, fear not for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this is the way you shall find the babe. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes and is lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to men. And the shepherd said, Let's go see this. And so they went and um, and found the child. We have um, we have promises that God is up to something and intends to accomplish some things um, at a time when it appears unlikely that God is going to vindicate all that he has purposed to accomplish in a single generation at, um, at some late date in history. But the purposes of God in bringing Christ into the world occurred in far less likely circumstances for the Savior to have been born and survived, grown to adulthood, and been able to minister as he was able to minister. Now, it's true that the people misapprehended what God was doing, and they misapprehended what the first mission of the Lord would be. But people misapprehend what the Lord is doing and how the Lord is going to accomplish his purposes now at the end of times as well. The ability of God to accomplish a matter while he is also concealing the matter from the understanding of the world should never be questioned because that is exactly how he has accomplished over and over again the things that he said he intended to do. I'm getting ready to give a talk at a conference in the spring, and I've been going back and looking carefully at the... um, the revelations that have rolled out in our day speaking to us. One of the things that is very apparent 
is that the the statements, the guidance, the commandments, the instruction, the lessons that we've been given are not given to individuals. It's given to the people. Right now, the biggest challenge that remains as an obstacle to the accomplishment of what God has told us that he intends to do is the rising up of a people, not as those who can cleverly parse Scripture or who can endlessly go on about minutiae related to the gospel. That's not the challenge at all. The the challenge is to have us regard one another in a way so that we can live in peace with one another and we aren't a threat to one another. I'm hoping he doesn't mind me mentioning this, but in a in a recent conversation I had um, with a friend, uh, Rob Adolfo, um, he and his wife are living on an Indian reservation, and um, she's a, um, a, a tribal chieftain leader. Uh, he's uh, Polynesian, but the, the, the two of them and their children have actually performed um, uh, Indian dances in full garb, uh, dancing at uh, various locations, celebrating Native American culture, history, and peoples. Uh, I think they performed at the Calgary Stampede um, in full garb. And um, we, we um, were having a conversation, and, and uh, Rob was frustrated because he'd been talking to someone who wanted to do um, some work in an outreach to try and approach Native Americans with um, the continuation of the restoration and bringing them to the Book of Mormon and bringing them to a knowledge that God is actually up to something and that the Native peoples matter. And the fellow who was talking to Rob said, it's just too bad. We don't, we, we need someone we need someone that can that can bring that Native American uh, point of view, and can. And Rob was frustrated because uh, he um, he's on the phone and and he's he's what they're looking for. And I said, Rob, Rob, the next time you come down, uh, bring bring all your dress and your garb and do a dance, and maybe they'll figure out who they're talking to. Uh, he, we had a good laugh, but the the problem and the challenge is to take and bring 
people together, not because you have subdued me with your arguments or because I have subdued you with my arguments. There shouldn't be any arguments. You know, the cure for disagreement is time and patience and careful and solemn and ponderous thoughts. We don't hear one another because we don't have the patience to allow the issue to unfold. We are in a hurry, and we want to get the result. It's obvious to me from reading the revelations that have been given to us that the Lord is far more interested in the process than he is in having us present a result. The process of working together and learning to cooperate, respect, and deal with one another is far more valuable and meaningful than is knocking out a result in a hurry. And speaking of a hurry, I've been talking too long. We're more than an hour, and I didn't want to do that. Look, use the scriptures as the starting point. The Book of Mormon in particular was given to us in our day as something from which to pry open and look into things that are real, that are beyond the veil. I was going to read, but I'll just commend to you um, the account of the condescension of God given by Nephi when he's talking about the tree of life. In the, in the New Scriptures, it's First uh, Nephi chapter 3, really beginning at um, paragraph 6, but paragraph 7 and 8 and 9 make it clear that the condescension of God begins with Mary. I've talked about that in Our Divine Parents but you should reread that as part of the Christmas story, as part of, of thinking about this season, because it took an enormous effort on the part of heaven to bring to pass the coming of the Savior into the world. And although he wasn't born on the winter solstice or near it, we celebrate his birth at this time. And we look a little nutty if we don't celebrate it at this time. So we're regarded as nutty enough already. We celebrate it now. And so now's the time to think upon, reflect upon, and to look carefully at the scriptures. If you will allow careful and solemn and ponderous thought 
to inform you as you read those verses of Nephi's, you may be shocked at the things that the Lord has been willing to tell us in plain language if we were willing to hear it. God lives, the prophecies are true, the scriptures that we have are adequate for God's purposes in our day. And we really needn't go too far away from them to find our way back to what we need. And the most important material of all that he has given us is the Book of Mormon as a covenant and the revelations and instructions that have been given as commandments to us in our day. They are a blueprint for the establishment of Zion if we'll just give heed to them. We don't need to be like the folks on Mars Hill always wanting to hear some new thing when what we have heard already from the Lord challenges us to our core to become more united as a people, to be more patient with one another, to listen to what each of us have to say. We're too busy coming up with our own response to hear what the other person has to say. Maybe taking time to listen and then waiting a day or two to figure out what the right response would be would be the best form of a conversation instead of how quickly and how rapidly we want to have things take place now in an instant, suddenly. <laughs> when God says things are going to happen quickly, there are watches, there are calendars, there are glaciers, and then there's tectonic plates. God moves them all. And so for him, the movement of a tectonic plate may seem quick. So don't think that you have to hurry up because the opportunity, it's here, it's now, it's given to you, but it's the process, not the result. God will take care of the result. The only thing we can engage in is the process itself. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation by Denver Snuffer. For more information, including complete transcripts of all of Denver's lectures, please visit restorationarchives.com. If you would like to hear more light and truth, please take a moment to subscribe. Just search for Light and Truth in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.